I don't know how many of you know the story of Harold and the Purple Crayon. It's a children's book. It's an old children's book, actually. It's been around a long time. And uh, it tells about uh, Harold, who is a young child of sort of uh, indeterminate age, maybe a toddler or a preschooler, and who has this wonderful purple crayon, which allows him to essentially draw his world. So he starts off in bed, which is where toddlers and preschoolers ought to be in the evening, and then he takes his purple crayon and he draws himself right out of the window and onto an adventure, an adventure that includes pie and uh, all kinds of good things out in the world. The story makes me think about last week's platform, actually, as we talked about what it means to be part of a tradition where we create our own meaning, we create our own world together, since that's exactly what Harold is doing. He draws the moon and then follows it along his adventure. But you might recall some of the details of Harold's story as it continues. His hand slips at one point, and he accidentally draws a tumultuous ocean. And then he has to really quickly draw a boat to get himself into so that he can brave the seas. He's drawing an apple tree, and it's so beautiful that he wants something to guard the luscious apples in the tree. And he draws a dragon, but unfortunately he accidentally makes the dragon too scary. So he himself has to run away. And then at the very end of the story, Harold can't find his own window again. He wants to go home and go to bed, and he can't find the window that's his. And so the story shows him drawing window after window in apartment buildings and houses, trying to find the one that's his, looking over and over again the purple crayon getting away from him. I don't want you to worry. He does find his own window eventually. He remembers that the window was around the moon, so he starts with the moon, puts the window around it, and finds himself in his room where he draws up his covers and goes to sleep. Like most great children's stories, Harold and the Purple Crayon is not just about the sweet and happy but also about the scary things that happen. In this case, the uncertainty, the disorientation, even the fear that can come from our bouts of creativity. When we find that we are drawing so much outside the lines that we have actually lost hold of the world around us. Because the truth is, creativity does sometimes feel less like building something beautiful and more like losing your grip on the familiar. In preparation for this platform, I posted on Facebook a question. I just asked people associated with West to comment on what changes they had experienced in the last few years, either in their own lives or in the world at large. Boy, you guys must be tired. People talked about losing jobs and getting new jobs, about finding new career paths because the ones that they had planned did not work out. They talked about getting married and ending relationships. They talked about losing health and having to reimagine what their life might be like. I think it's 
it's common to find folks experiencing that level of change, not just out in the regular world, but in a community like ours. I often find that people come to West for the first time because they've experienced a change in their lives. They've moved, they've lost a partner or changed a job. Something has shifted in life. The foundation is altering a little, and they're looking for something new. It's tempting, I think, when we consider this month's theme of creativity to look only for the beautiful, that which we create with creative joy and force. One of the responders on that Facebook question articulated so well the difference she found in the creative that she brought into being and the change that was created for her, the change that happened to her, in other words, Frequently, that kind of creativity, that kind of change feels an awful lot like chaos, like we have lost the purple crayon or someone has yanked it from our hands, and we are now just trying to keep up with whatever life has drawn around us. It's not just, of course, in our personal lives that we experience that kind of creative chaos. It happens in a community like ours as well. I have been thinking a lot about this two-platform change, this experiment for the the couple of months, although I think really after the kid flip change, you know, it's almost nothing. In the last few months, we have experimented with when our children have come in to platform. We've tried new things and new ideas And perhaps at some of those times, all that creativity has felt indeed a little more like chaos. It's very tempting, I think, not to make changes at all, to stay comfortable. This community, conveniently, has never been a place really to stay comfortable. When I started here just uh, about eight years ago, The congregation had just chosen in the space of a couple of years to search for a new senior leader, to to do a large capital campaign and major building renovation, and to consider their national affiliations. It was a busy few years, I think. I often think how lucky I was, in fact, to have missed those few years and to have come directly afterward. I think that was uh, smart of me. This community has not shied away from creativity, even when it feels like sitting in the middle of chaos. Understanding how creativity can feel like chaos in our personal lives and in our community life together helps me to understand what the heck is going on in our country. I don't know if you feel as I do, but sometimes it seems to me that our country has gone off the deep end, that perhaps there is a reset button we could toggle for America. It seems like that in sometimes ludicrous ways and sometimes in what feel like really scary ways, an intensification of our divisions a level of open hatred in language and action expressed that we haven't seen in a while. I doubt I need to tell you the examples, the situations. You've seen them on the nightly news or read them in articles. 
hate speech inciting violence, articulations of incredible bias against Muslim Americans, immigrants of all nationalities, black Americans, poor Americans, LGBTQ Americans, female Americans. There's a letter originally created by the Brookline Clergy Association to which I signed on, which puts it this way. There is a worrying trend this election year. Political speech has become increasingly intolerant and even in some cases marked by calls for violence. Racism, bigotry, misogyny, and religious prejudice should not become common currency in U.S. politics. Many Americans are expressing dissatisfaction with government. But a desire to see change must not become an excuse for intolerance, for blaming immigrants or religious minorities for the nation's problems. Moving beyond political correctness should never mean leaving behind common decency, end quote. It's not just, of course, at political rallies. Many of you have been, I suspect, following the news about the anti-trans laws passed most recently in North Carolina, laws that make it illegal for our transgender siblings to go to the bathroom where they feel comfortable There was a sign at one of the rallies against this legislation that had a little boy holding up uh, a sign that said something like, they just have to pee. (laughs) I thought it was a great symbol, certainly an accurate articulation, (laughs) and appropriately held by a child who understands that need deeply. Sometimes you just have to pee, and we are making that unsafe in this country. One response I tend to have to all of these changes, these feelings that we are going backward, is anger. That's usually my first one. I sit with the anger for a while. How could anyone feel that this is fair? How could they allow this? How could they say such hateful things? Who are these people? What is wrong with them? The next one is to get despondent to feel that it will never get better, that we're all just heading for the proverbial hell in the proverbial handbasket. The danger with despondency is that it's easy to move from there to just cute cat videos, (laughs) to look away instead of keeping your eyes trained on what begs to be seen. So when I'm in the midst of anger or despondency or more typically a mix of the two, I try to remember my ethical culture principles. (laughs) What were they again? Here in ethical culture, we affirm the worth in every person. I love the way the founder uh, of ethical culture, Felix Adler, articulated this. He talks about how Frequently, he didn't see the worth in people, how it wasn't at all obvious to him. Actually, a person might stand in front of him showing really barely any worth at all. And yet, he took a leap of faith and affirmed that the worth was there. And we, too, are invited to take that leap of faith, and it's a big one sometimes, and affirm the worth. Then I think about the other thing we often say, that we seek to elicit the best in other people and therefore in ourselves. Something that has helped me with that idea, practically, you know, of eliciting the best, because it sounds nice, but then when they're right in front of you, oh, 
Something that's helped me are the principles of NVC, nonviolent communication, sometimes known as compassionate communication. I actually like that articulation, that formulation better, compassionate communication. Underneath uh, NVC is the idea that all of us, all people, have some of the same basic needs, the same basic hopes and fears. That even when we are speaking out of our very worst selves, and just as we have best selves, we all have worst selves too. Even when we are speaking out of our very worst selves, underneath that is some human need that we are trying to have met some human fear we are expressing. I tend to, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say I try to, I try to not think that people are stupid or ignorant or naturally hateful. Certainly, I believe people can be trapped in hate-filled ideology and in systems. But I try to remember that most people are simply trying to figure out how to respond to those basic human needs, including their basic human fear. I think about that as I look at our country and all that we are experiencing right now. David Brooks, the columnist in the New York Times, talked recently, spoke, wrote about the changes that the global uh, world is experiencing. He wrote, when you think about it, there are four big forces coursing through modern societies. Global migration is leading to demographic diversity. Economic globalization is creating wider opportunity, but also inequality. The internet is giving people more choices over what to buy and pay attention to. A culture of autonomy valorizes individual choice and self-determination. Amanda Taub uh, wrote for Vox.com, similarly talking about the changes experienced, particularly in America. The article she wrote is called The Rise of American Authoritarianism. And, and it was looking at Trump supporters, although I want to be clear that it's not an article about a single political candidate, not at all. I recommend the whole article to you, actually. It's an article about authoritarianism in general in candidates and elected officials around the world. And in fact, you can look through the countries in Europe even and look and see each country in the last few years and the authoritarian candidates that they have either had run or have actually elected to um, positions in their government. So she's looking at this trend toward authoritarianism that we have seen worldwide. The idea behind her article where she interviews sociologists and other researchers around the country is that for people who lean authoritarian in other places in their lives, perhaps in their parenting styles, for instance, and all of us are on some spectrum of authoritarian to permissive, right? I tend toward a permissive parenting style except for a few random places where I'm extremely authoritarian, thereby totally confusing my children, for instance. So we're, we're somewhere in that realm. For folks who lean authoritarian, the experience of rapid social change, fear, and experienced perceived threats, particularly from the outside, 
from outside the country lead to a desire for an authoritarian leader. Taub writes, this trend has been accelerated in recent years by demographic and economic changes such as immigration, which activated authoritarian tendencies, leading many Americans to seek out a strongman leader who would preserve a status quo they feel is under threat and impose order on a world they perceive as increasingly alien. She goes on, authoritarians are thought to express much deeper fears than the rest of the electorate, to seek the imposition of order where they perceive dangerous change, and to desire a strong leader who will defeat those fears with force. End quote. It comes down to fear. That's the part that helped me in this article Amanda Taub wrote. It comes down to fear behind the hate and vitriol and violence. And although I don't share the same fear, although to me many of the things that might be experienced as the erosion of society to others look instead like the widening of human rights and inclusion, I can still understand the experience of fear. I can understand the feeling that everything you have known is changing. I want to offer a side note, one that's probably not necessary, <laughs> but to say that, that just because I can understand that feeling, it, it doesn't mean I won't continue to fight for inclusion, for that widening of human rights, not at all. But eventually what I want is to be able to move beyond the fighting and towards something that looks like understanding, or at least to accompany the work of justice with an understanding of what the forces of resistance look like and what motivates them. And I think Taub is right in this article. I think Brooks is right as well. Looking around our country and even globally, we are in years of pretty rapid social change. I think about some of the things that I have celebrated in the last few years, marriage equality, which moved much faster than I expected that it might. Five or ten years ago, I would have told you we had another 15 or 20 to go until marriage equality was legal in this country. And yet here we are. Someone in the 930 platform offered, I thought, a very perceptive comment that marriage equality is one of the few human rights expansions that affects white men. <laughs> and that many see that as a reason why it has moved faster than expected. Mm -mm. True, true. It also doesn't ask us to change our income inequality much, and it doesn't challenge corporations. In fact, there's more weddings, better for business. But aside from the cynicism still, <laughs> it has been fast. And even good change, if we feel it is good, can still be destabilizing. 
One of the ways I personally have changed and grown a great deal in the last five or so years is my understanding of our transgender siblings and folks who are genderqueer and outside the gender binary. I've spoken a little bit here at WES about that journey I have taken and learning pronouns that are new to me, seeking to use them correctly. And sometimes I find it hard to remember but I do it because it is in service of something so much more important than my own comfort and ease. For creativity of the kind we are talking about, for change, destabilizing change to be tolerable, it has to be in, in service of something larger, something more important in service of the safety and inclusion of all people, in service of growth and room for more at the table. It's not just, I would say, those who tend authoritarian or conservative, which are not the same thing, that the changes we have experienced as a nation can be overwhelming, the destabilizing experience in America. I have thought for a while that in many ways the movements of both Trump and Sanders are reacting to the experience of destabilizing change and fear about those changes. They are very different movements with very different responses. And yet both of them speak to the reality that the American dream isn't working for Americans anymore. Their potential solutions are different. Their outlook on the social issues, very different. But they're there is, I believe, a similar cri de corps, a cry of the heart behind them. And perhaps all of us might be able to identify with that cri de corps. The Black Lives Matter movement comes out of a call, a cry that things are wrong, the system does not work and must be changed. The environmentalist movement comes out of a cry that we cannot go on the way we have been. We must change. Those of us facing college loans that seem to never end, the failing middle class, an increasing mortality among working class whites, society is destabilized, if it ever was stable to begin with. We are experiencing that destabilization, that change. And to handle it, we need to be able to hold up the vision of the new possibility, the new world that makes it worth it, that makes it worth it to go through creative chaos. In the next couple of days, actually starting this evening, Wes will be hosting folks in town for the Democracy Spring and Democracy Awakening movements. They'll be showing up this afternoon to sleep on our floor and be out by 7 a.m., which sounds early, but they have to go get arrested. You could, too, get arrested with them. Tomorrow, Bart Warden, the executive director of the American Ethical Union, is getting himself arrested, and on Wednesday, I'll be getting myself arrested. My husband was in the 930 platform, and it's possible that was the first time I mentioned to him my plans for Wednesday. So I think he's going to stop by the bank and try to pick up some bail money. (laughs) 
You too could be among that. The, the movements are about getting money out of politics and protecting voter rights. They say they are trying to save our democracy, these movements. I could argue that they are trying to create something new, since I don't know that there's ever been a time when our democracy has really been for everyone. But what a dream that would be. What a vision to hold up. There are real problems in society that people experience in very different ways that need creative solutions. David Brooks, in that same article in the New York Times, offers this response. The social fabric will be repaired by hundreds of millions of people making local covenants widening their circles of attachment across income, social, and racial divides. And William Barber, the minister from North Carolina who has been at the forefront of the Moral Mondays movement, he has an organization called Repairers of the Breach, and they put it like this. Their mission is to repair the breaches caused by centuries-old systems of racial and gender inequality. And to do that, we need thousands of clergy and lay leaders who will dedicate their lives to rebuilding, raising up, and repairing our moral infrastructure. Dana Pope, who is a member of Wes, who's here in the back wondering what I'm about to say about her, uh, but really it's just that she uses a metaphor I like so much. It's the metaphor of building a new house around us, this new house we hope to create, a new world, while we are still tearing down the old one, still around it. I think of Harold and the Purple Crayon there drawing the new possibilities, but perhaps having to rip back the pages of the old. Creativity can feel like chaos, but paradoxically, what we need most in response is more creativity, more herald with purple crayons, more of us building up a house, holding that idea. It's true in our personal lives, in our community life together, and in our national life. And part of our role as religious, ethical people is to hold up that vision, to hold up the reason that we are tolerating destabilizing change, the reason that we need to be creative, to point out the world we are hoping to see. We need to continue to believe in that world and to help others to believe in it too. And even while we are believing in that world and working toward it, even fighting for it, fighting for justice, for inclusion, for equity, we in ethical culture are uniquely asked to do so with compassion and kindness, with an understanding toward those who are destabilized by the very work we are engaged in to understand that they too are trying to navigate change and to engage them in conversation as we are able. There's an article in this Sunday's New York Times magazine talking about the activist Dave Fleischer who uses the old-fashioned door knocking as his tool. 
you know, walking around, knocking on doors, and talking to people. He writes, he is quoted in the article as saying, modern political campaigns have focused mostly on communicating with people who already agree with them and turning them out to vote. Not an unimportant thing. But he goes on, but what we've learned by having real in-depth conversations with people is that a broad swath of voters are actually open to changing their mind. And that's exciting because it offers the possibility that we could get past the current paralysis on a wide variety of controversial issues. Look at that. Relationship works. We could have told them that, of course. It's interesting. The interesting thing about the approach that Fleischer uses is that it starts by really giving the voters the chance to talk and think about their concerns and fears, inviting them to go deep into it. He starts with a conversation, and if someone, he he invites people to give a number on a 1 to 10 scale. How comfortable are you with LGBTQ issues? Are you in favor of LGBTQ equality? And folks rate themselves. And then he shows a video of the opposition, a video of a preacher railing against transgender people, making all the arguments made against them. And then he says, how would you rate yourself now on transgender issues? And the number goes down. People are more fearful, more in touch with their real fear and worry. And that is where the conversation starts. That's where he begins Sometimes the best way to move from chaos to creativity is to take a breath, be present to how the chaos feels for ourselves or for another, and then to connect with that person, to learn from them, to teach them, to see if we can't move to a deeper understanding. I'd like to end this platform by quoting a whole passage from that article. I don't think I've ever done that before. But first of all, this passage is, in my opinion, incredibly moving, and it quotes a friend of mine. So I couldn't resist. Meg Riley, a 60-year-old Unitarian Universalist minister from Minnesota who volunteers with a racial justice group, recounted her eventful day of door-knocking. Her second conversation, she said, was with a black man in his 50s who was a 7 on the 10-point scale. 1 is um, totally uncomfortable, and 10 is totally comfortable and supportive of LGBTQ rights in this case. The man's daughter, though, would have none of it. She practically pushed him out of the way to tell Riley they were a 10. I'm with Black Lives Matter, and I know a lot of trans people, the woman told Riley. We're a 10. This family is a 10. Several of Riley's conversations proved poignant. She told voters about her own transgender child, G, now an adult. She recounted that when G was three, the toddler responded to a question about possible Christmas presents by asking, could Santa turn a girl into a boy? Riley's devotion to G had a visible impact on several voters, including the mother of a seven-year-old girl. The woman eventually told Riley that she had voted against gay marriage in California, but that she now regretted that choice. I made a mistake, she said. On the issue of transgender rights, the woman seemed mostly supportive, but stopped at a nine. 
She said she was trying to evolve on the issue, though. As Riley prepared to leave for the next house on the block, the woman called out, Give me a few years, and I know I'll be a 10. May we all be so creative, ourselves and with each other. May we take our purple crayon and draw the world we hope to be so that someday we all can be a 10. Thank you.